bust my line, a couple beautiful girls tell me goodbye. Trucks break down, dogs run off, politicians lie by Benchwarmers, before I start discussing sports this week on the fifth and final installment of at least this series of Riding Pine, uh, Nika will be back next week. He had some family business to take care of. Former guest of the show, his dad, Mark Bryant, is uh, actually having his birthday this week. So Nico will be back soon. But uh, before we, we start this last Riding the Pine episode, I wanted to give the appreciation that Nico and I talk about all the time. We can't believe that we have a show people follow on social media. Some people listen to us for their sports news, which if we're your only source of sports news... I think that you're, uh, you you may be missing out, but we appreciate every single one of you who's taking the time to follow us on our social media pages, listen to us, and subscribe to us on whatever podcasting platform you listen to, leaving a rating and a review. By the way, uh, we will be reading that review that was just left on iTunes. We'll we'll read that next week when Nico gets back. I don't want to steal that thunder away from him, but everybody who's done anything like that, you've told a friend about the podcast, you've worn one of our shirts, bought a sweatshirt, anything. It truly means the world to us, and it's it's really awesome to think that we can uh, sit here. Uh, I'm sitting here in uh, my girlfriend's apartment, Bree, who I'm going to give a shout-out to as well because she volunteers her time and lets us use her fancy camera to film the videos for our YouTube channel. Um, everybody, it, the two of us don't exist. This show doesn't exist uh, without those people, Bree, and, and you all listening. Um, so I, I appreciate it. I wanted to start off by saying that because I feel like it had been a long time since we've acknowledged it. And I don't often get a chance to speak to you all by myself. I've been able to, been blessed to do that for the last four, now five weeks. So I did want to thank you all because this time I, <clears throat> I, I was nervous when I first started this series. I didn't know, like when I was doing my own show by myself earlier, it didn't feel right. I didn't feel comfortable. And I think I'm finally, you know, it pushed me out of my comfort zone and it pushed me to a place where now I feel a lot more comfortable talking to myself in the microphone and the camera. Um, and I think it's helped develop me as a little bit more as a podcaster slash broadcaster. Um, so I'm grateful for that. And I'm grateful that you all decided to tune in this week to the far end of the bench, riding the pine week five, uh, be sure, like I mentioned, the social media pages that you guys are following us on at FEOTB Pod. If you're in our bracket challenge, we'll be talking about March Madness coming up towards the end of the episode this week. But if you're in our bracket challenge, remember you have to be following at FEOTB Pod and subscribe to our YouTube channel in order to qualify for that $150 gift card if you your bracket is the one that wins. Um, yeah, and be sure, leave a uh, like and a comment on a YouTube video. Uh, you can respond to us, go back and forth with us. We'll respond to every single comment that we get on our YouTube channel. So be sure to subscribe, leave a like and a comment there. It helps us out. Uh, tell a friend about the show. Listen to our new episodes every single Wednesday, wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a five-star rating and a review as well. We'll read that on the podcast. Okay. I finally got all the business stuff out of the way. Um, and now we can start discussing the things that actually matter. Like... Uh, once again, I think I don't want to start it this way. And I know that we haven't given MLB its due diligence now that the lockout has ended. I talked a lot of shit about the lockout 
and how they were going to miss out on the games and, and how the game is dying. And then I turned around after they ended the lockout and didn't talk about it. But uh, I will make this announcement coming up on Friday. Christian Saez, former guest of the show, he was on with his wife Marissa for the far end of the bench. He's also been a guest on uh, my Center of Attention podcast as well as the guy who actually hired me to the radio station at KWSB 91.1 FM, the guy who... Uh, Depending on how you see me, blessed or cursed you all to to hear the sultry sound of my voice on recording. Christian will be coming on and we'll be doing a full MLB cheat sheet. We'll talk about this Rockies move that they got Chris Bryant, even though it seemed like they were going towards a rebuild. That will all be coming out this morning uh, or this Friday morning in a bonus episode. So I'm going to start today off talking about NFL free agency. And it's been an interesting offseason. I mentioned it last week. It's been about six weeks since the Super Bowl ended, and there hasn't been a single time where I've sat down to make an outline for a show and the NFL isn't at the top of everybody's list. It happened again today. The NFL led the news cycle again, even though we just had two rounds of March Madness where a 15 seed made its way into the six, Sweet 16. Yet, I have to begin talking about the NFL free, free agent period Legal tampering started last week. Uh, free agency officially started last Wednesday is when teams could officially sign. We saw Russell Wilson sign his Broncos contract. Randy Gregory, Deion Jones as well. Um, Devontae Adams is a Las Vegas Raider. Was offered more money by the Packers and decided that he wanted to go play with Derek Carr, his former college teammate up in Las Vegas. The strange thing about this offseason is that there have been plenty of free agency moves true free agency moves. Uh, We've seen a couple teams have to move players due to cap necessity. The Dallas Cowboys no longer have a true number one wide receiver in Amari Cooper or defensive end threat in Randy Gregory because of their cap situation. Um, And it's been those things mixed with a ton of trades, especially in the quarterback market, where we saw over the weekend – Deshaun Watson played the Cleveland Browns like a fiddle, and in turn, Cleveland Browns played Baker Mayfield like a fiddle. Uh, and more and more I learned about this Deshaun Watson contract, the more I'm actually starting to lean against it. It, I, it's, it was inevitable that it was going to happen. Whether or not he was, if he was found guilty of the criminal charges, obviously it would be a long time until he was going to be playing in the NFL again. What people don't necessarily realize about the situation is not only did he, he wasn't suspended last year. The Texans just sat him and he just sat at home. So he was still collecting a paycheck every single week. Didn't miss out on a single game check. And now he's been able to finagle his way out of the terrible situation that would be trying to quarterback the Houston Texans during a rebuild. Uh, gets a the highest amount of guaranteed money ever given in the NFL, $230 million on a five-year contract. That's $46 million per year, fully guaranteed. Um, and we've all been talking about the fact that he's going to be facing a suspension in the NFL this season when he does come back after his civil suits are settled. <clears throat> he's When that happens and the player is suspended, you're fined for those games. You're you forfeit a portion of your contract, of your base salary on your contract. And the reason why Deshaun Watson went back and forth on whether or not he wanted to sign with the Browns was in order to get them to agree to a contract where his base salary, which is the salary that is 
eligible to be fined by the NFL during his suspension, however long that's going to be, his base salary is only a million dollars. A million dollars of a $230 million fully guaranteed contract. This guy swindled his way into now the max, I think, uh, unless he's suspended for a full season, the max amount of suspension games that he's probably going to get. We're looking probably about at about 10 games. That would be about $500,000 that he's missing out on out of a $230 million contract. And when he comes back, he's going to have all of that money to pay off his civil suits if that's the route that he decides to go down. And he, it, it's, it, it seems wrong. It feels wrong. And the argument comes up every now and then. Like if you had an issue with bad people playing professional sports you would not be able to you got to go watch like the g league or something and even then you're never going to find a sport or a team that's full of all choir boys you're always going to have bad guys in a locker room that are unfortunately very talented at a children's game and they're able to make a lot of money and they're able to get a lot of leeway because of that he's not even going to get punished and when he gets punished it's going to be the the minimum amount of damage done to him. And if it's true, like if any of the allegations are true of what he did, this dude is a predator. He he needs to be on a list and you know, there should be a heftier penalty other than missing out on 10, uh, uh, basically a year and a half of football and still being able to walk away saying, wow, I, I'm going to make $230 million by the time this contract is up. I'm going to be able to play the game. I'm going to be in the public eye again. I'm going to be right back in the same situation that put me here in the first place. How do you not expect that to go the same exact way? Like the definition of insanity is repeating the same action, expecting a different result. Result. Well, we're going to put Deshaun Watson in the same exact outcome, being the starting quarterback, making more money than he knows what to do with. Now, the only difference is he's in Cleveland instead of Houston. Houston's got the most strip clubs per capita of any other city in the U.S., and I don't think that's the same situation in Cleveland, but he's going to be able to find – like, you have that amount of money, you're going to be able to find something. It's, it doesn't seem right. It doesn't sit well with me. It doesn't – I'm not going to sit here and say that it's not expected he was going to be back in the league. We all knew he was going to be back and he was going to be playing, and as soon as the criminal charge is cleared – Everybody said once that happened, the NFL, we're going to see exactly how moral the NFL is, exactly where NFL teams' morals lie. And we saw exactly where the Browns lie uh, in that regard, where they give him a brand-new contract, let him negotiate his way down to the least amount of finable money on that new contract. Oh, and now you have the number one overall pick that you drafted at quarterback from three years ago who's pissed off at you, but you've already invested all that capital. You could have paid him into this new quarterback. It seems like it's a bad situation. It's a bad setup. Uh, it looks like um, Jacoby Brissett is going to be the starting quarterback until Deshaun Watson is finished being suspended, whatever that suspension is going to be from the NFL. So it'll be interesting to see if Stefanski can tread, can tread these waters. What I, I don't necessarily get about this situation is the amount of hate and the amount of negative spin that this has gotten for guys like uh, Baker Mayfield, who I don't necessarily disagree that he's not always been the most mature guy in handling these kinds of situations. 
But think about it from his perspective. I know that you're, if you're listening to this in Cleveland, you're not going to have any empathy for what Baker Mayfield is going through. But the team drafted you number one overall after going winless the season before. You end up starting and breaking some rookie records. The next next season you start and it doesn't go well because your coach is an idiot. You get another chance. You get a new lease on life under Kevin Stefanski in a COVID season, and you make not only the most noise that you've ever made in a season since you came back to the city of Cleveland, you win your first playoff game in that same amount of time. And you're playing the eventual conference champion, Kansas City Chiefs, on the road in the playoffs. You play them to within two scores. You feel good about yourself. And then we all know what happened this season. It could have been handled differently. I think the Browns should have kept Baker Mayfield out as soon as he was injured, and it was evident he could not play at the level that he wanted to. I give the guy props for being tough, but there's a a fine line between tough and crazy, and he went fully over that line. He should not have been playing after, I think, about week six. He should have shut it down, gotten the surgery. He would have been about ready to come back and start proving that he was going to be coming off this injury with a vengeance. Instead... We're left with now a pissed-off Baker Mayfield, a team that doesn't want him but doesn't want to move him or move him at least for a specific price. Are they going to get a first-round pick for a guy like Baker Mayfield back? No. The Cleveland Browns aren't going to be able to get that kind of return. They picked up his fifth-year option, so you might as well keep him around. You know that he's not going to be your backup quarterback, though, so you're basically wasting a roster spot. It's, It's a strange time to be a Cleveland Browns fan. I don't understand it. Like As a as a Cincinnati Bengals fan, we've been as down as many other franchises in the past, and there could have been a lot of negative people after that Super Bowl loss, and there are some, but like we, we at least understand where we're coming from. We at least understand that two seasons ago, we had the number one overall pick, so yeah, we're disappointed we didn't win the Super Bowl, and we didn't do exactly what we wanted to do in the season, but we're not ready to blow things up just yet. I think you got to give it a little bit of time to marinate. How do we know that Baker Mayfield wasn't going to be a good starting quarterback for the Cleveland Browns? We had one season where he didn't have a a half-retarded coach and one season where he wasn't walking around with one good arm. I don't think that you can necessarily gauge how good or how good he's not based on that small of a sample size, yet all of Cleveland is ready to move on right away and now vilify a guy who's done nothing except bring your franchise back to relevance. You remember the conversations surrounding the Cleveland Browns before Baker Mayfield was drafted? It was about how big of a laughingstock. They were the factory of sadness. It doesn't make any sense to me. Uh, The other big news in NFL offseason talk – Obviously, the Atlanta Falcons missed out on Sean Watson, so they are moved on from Matt Ryan. Matt Ryan pretty much said if they're going to go after Sean Watson that blatantly while I'm still under contract, I don't want to be playing for you. Uh, he he handled it, I think, in a little bit better way than Baker Mayfield. He didn't come out right. He didn't come out in a press conference and basically state uh, that he wanted to leave. Left on somewhat decent terms, and it ended up working out in his favor he was traded to Indianapolis on Monday and uh, it was only for the third round pick that Indianapolis picked up from the Carson Wentz deal so uh, you don't really lose anything you pick up a starting quarterback it's basically third time's a charm for what the Indianapolis Colts have been trying to do since Andrew Luck retired where they just bring in an older quarterback who was in their prime in Phillip Rivers and a 
older quarterback who you thought was going to have a resurgent year in Carson Wentz, you're doing pretty much the same thing in Matt Ryan. But if Matt Ryan didn't have that 23-8 to blown lead in the Super Bowl, we're remembering that MVP season a lot more fondly. We're remembering the fact that Matt Ryan is the godfather of quarterback footwork in the shotgun formation, which is what 85% of the NFL offenses run now. So this could be end up being one of the best situations Matt Ryan could have walked himself into. He gets to play for a coach in Frank Reich, who was a former quarterback himself. He has an amazing running game, a stellar offensive line. He's not going to get beat up like he was the last few years in Atlanta. I think this is a great move for Matt Ryan, and it's a great move for the Indianapolis Colts because they finally have somewhat competent quarterback. Their roster outside of the quarterback position the last three years has been good enough to at least be in the conversation for a conference championship game. Now they have the number one quarterback in the division in the AFC South and a clear path to the playoffs. It's a a win-win situation for Matt Ryan and the Indianapolis Colts. Um, that's the gist, the big news of the NFL free agency coming off of the weekend. I'm sure I'll miss something by the time this episode and video comes out on YouTube. Uh, we're going to be talking about NHL free agency because I skipped over hockey last week. That's coming up here on the Far End of the Bench podcast. Something that I think was lost in all of this NFL hoopla, thanks to Sean Watson for taking up the entirety of the media's time over the weekend, NHL trade deadline passed on Monday afternoon at 1 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. Um, and you know, like I said, NFL had been overshadowing the NHL. I basically have only been paying attention to hockey to make sure that my fantasy team has been winning. And I've made like set a lineup every single day. Other than that, I haven't had much time to be watching a lot of hockey and I live in Colorado, so I can't watch the avalanche anyways. Uh, so I missed out on a lot. I try and keep up with spit and chicklets, but that's a three hour long podcast. And a lot of the times I don't have the the ability to sit there and pay full attention and take notes and all all that on the hockey stuff they talk about by the way it's a three hour long podcast like an hour and a half of it is them just shooting the shit so I do my best uh, I had a, a, a boo boo I had an error on, on the tweets I said what's the possibility that Claude Giroux ends in an avalanche sweater by the end of the trade deadline on Monday morning not knowing that he had been traded to Florida over the weekend so that was my bad I admit it I deleted the tweet that's that's on me uh, I, I will I'll own up to that but I did take a look at the trades the avalanche made at the deadline and uh, I kind of went I felt like I went a little bit too general last week talking about NFL free agency so I'm focusing my efforts now on mainly just talking about the avalanche trade acquisitions I did want to mention that Mark Andre Fleury the Hall of Fame goaltender that was in Vegas now is in Chicago Got shipped to Minnesota. That's they're hanging on for the last spot, last playoff spot in the Central Division, uh, and they're in a tie actually right now with Nashville as to who would be in the first wild card spot, depending on how they shake out by the time this podcast comes out. <clears throat> so Mark Andre Fleury did get moved out of Chicago, got what he wanted. It was there was talk that he was going to be retiring because he didn't want to play in Chicago. Felt like he wanted to get another playoff run in. And I guess Minnesota, honestly, I don't know how many teams would have been in the trade market for Marc-Andre Fleury. I think Toronto should have been in on it, and it's surprising that they didn't make that move. Um, but, you know, Marc-Andre Fleury being as old as he is, he was never really the premier goaltender in Vegas. That's why Vegas decided to go with Leonard, even though it's kind of worked against them with the injury bug this season. <clears throat> so I, I'm kind of of the mind that 
Marc-Andre Fleury didn't have as many suitors as he probably thought he would have at the trade deadline. But the Avalanche, Joe Sackick is a wizard when it comes to this kind of thing at the GM position, just like how he was as a player where he basically finds the perfect shot and, and always delivers. Did the same thing at the NHL trade deadline, and it started basically a week ago. Actually, exactly a week ago, by the time I'm recording this on Monday, the Avalanche gave away Drew Hellison and a 2023 second-round pick, and they received Josh Manson, the defenseman from Anaheim. Uh, the, from what I found on Manson, I looked him up. He's not the biggest defenseman that they're going to have. He's not a Curtis McDermott where he's six foot five and, and nearly 300 pounds. He's about six foot. He's over 200 pounds, so he's not small. Plays a solid defensive game. Adds a lot of grit to, I think, a third or fourth defensive pairing. I could see him maybe pairing up with uh, EJ or maybe Gerard when Gerard comes back from injury. But that's really what you're going for now. Like the Avalanche, in the past week, we've had the announcement that Gerard's going to miss about five weeks with his lower body injury. Landis Cog is going to go under surgery, uh, undergo surgery. And I'm sure that Nico and I will have the debate. It hasn't been done yet, but that was that sparked a controversy of are the Avalanche going to join the ranks of the Vegas Golden Knights and the Tampa Bay Lightning and the Chicago Blackhawks of circumventing the salary cap during the regular season and placing a guy who they know isn't going to be injured for that entire time, but you can place a guy on long-term injured reserve and not have his cap hit and be able to acquire more for a playoff run where in the playoffs everybody knows in the NHL the salary cap does not exist. Um, that was the main topics of conversation. But with this signing of Hansen, you replace Gerard for the amount of time that his injury is going to be. And then when you get towards the end of the regular season, I don't necessarily, I think he's going to be available for all of the games, but he's not going to be in a starting role when it gets to the playoffs or when it gets to the really important must win game situations. He brings in a lot of experience. He's been in the league for a long time. He's about 30 years old. So he, He's older than a lot of your top guys. That's always beneficial, adding the experience. But being from Anaheim and not really ever having major cup success, you're getting the experience, but it's not necessarily the championship's caliber experience <clears throat> that you would like to see in a move like this. But the the way that it worked out, only giving up a prospect and a second-round pick, that's <clears throat> a good win for them. They also acquired last Monday, they traded away Tyson Jost to receive Nico Sturm, Sturm from Minnesota. Um, so they had a little interdivision trade. I think that one came down to Jost. Jost was one of those young forwards that Sackick, when going into the expansion draft, you were having the debates, are they going to protect Donskoy? Are they going to protect O'Connor? Are they going to protect Tyson Jost? Those were the three young forwards that you had that were basically all on the same level going into the expansion draft. And they decided to protect Logan O'Connor and Tyson Jost. Eunice Donskoy gets drafted by Seattle, no longer on your club. And now you've gone through this majority of the season with a guy like Tyson Jost, who's not going to lose you any games, doesn't put you in any bad situations, but he hasn't been that offensive third and, fo third and fourth line presence that he had been in the past. You're able to keep his same production with a guy like an Alex Newhook, and maybe you add a Nico Sturm who had been scoring at a little bit higher of a pace than Tyson Jost so far on the season. Maybe he's able to find 
chemistry on that third and fourth line. And that's where we talked about in the past on this podcast. If you're going to make a Stanley Cup playoff run, you have to have third and fourth line scoring in the playoffs in big situations. Nico Sturm maybe presents more of that, <clears throat> more of that possibility. And yes, he's a, as a, free agent at the end of the season. Tyson Jost was also going to be a free agent. Are you really going to pay the money that some other team that's desperate for forward depth is going to pay for Tyson Jost to stick around? I don't know. I don't think that you're going to do that. He really, Logan O'Connor, if, if we're going to say that him and Logan O'Connor were on the same level going into the season, Logan O'Connor, with the way that he's played, the presence that he brings, being able to move up to the first line when McKinnon was down early on in the season and not missing a beat. That's what really separated Logan O'Connor and Tyson Jost. That's why I think we saw Tyson Jost involved in this trade with Minnesota. And now we pick up Nico Sturm, who's basically the same player, but maybe a little bit more offensive flash. So Sackick did another good move there. Then today, actually, we had two moves in the past 24 hours of, of the time I'm recording this on Monday evening. Uh, the Avs gave up Justin Barron and a 2024 second-round pick, so not this draft, but the following draft, to receive forward Arturi Lenkinen from Montreal. You might remember him. He had one of the lone goals Montreal scored in last year's Stanley Cup final against the Tampa Bay Lightning. This was by far one of the bigger moves of the entire trade deadline for Joe Sackick and company because you bring in a guy that is young, very young, 26 years old. He's from the Finnish national program and then played in the Swedish league, which are recognized as two of the better up-and-coming professional leagues now before you get to the NHL and their affiliates. And he's been on the Montreal Canadiens team, which if you haven't been paying a lot of attention and you live in Colorado, no shame on you because we can't even watch our own team. So I doubt you're going to be able to watch a lot of Canadiens hockey. This guy is going to be a spark that you can add to a second line. You pair him with a guy possibly like uh, a Nazem Kadri, uh, Andre Burakovsky, the, the guys that you have normally that run your second line. You can add in Arturi Lankinen, and you have another offensive jolt uh, on a team that's already sick with offensive talent. Um, this was a great move, and you're giving up next to nothing for this guy, and he's a restricted free agent, so you're going to be able to have a very good shot of keeping him around. And I put in, in my notes here, if he comes in and has a great experience on a Stanley Cup run with the Colorado Avalanche, who's to say that he doesn't take a smaller contract than he maybe would have, get, would have gotten on the open market? to stick around and play in Denver for the Colorado Avalanche that are set up to be on this run for quite some time. This could be your possible replacement to losing Nazem Kadri to free agency at the end of the season because I just think he's going to be too expensive. Arturi Lankinen was a huge pickup. And the final move, Andrew Cagliano from San Jose has give up a 2024 fifth-round pick uh, for a 34-year-old forward. That is your type that Nico and I have been calling for the Colorado Avalanche to pick up so far this entire season. I said it in Claude Giroux. Um, <clears throat> and Nico, I want to say, Nico said Pavelski from Dallas. Those are the two examples that we put out of this player where he's a forward, he's got a lot of experience, and he can bring in leadership and playoff experience to a team that's going to need it and some grit. All of the moves that the Colorado Avalanche did 
combated their biggest weakness that we've seen in the playoffs for the past three years, and that's their lack of size. Their over-reliance on skill and a lack of size. When teams can just force you to the wall every single time and basically play whatever they want in the middle of your neutral zone, that's never going to be a recipe for success in the postseason. The Colorado Avalanche took every chance that they could to get better and more skillful this season, adding to the speed with guys like Lincoln in, um, and now you add in an, an uh, Andrew Cogliano on a team that this is a guy that was maybe getting a little long in the tooth, and he was on a team that was not going to be competing for anything in the postseason. And all of a sudden, he wakes up and he's on the team that's number one in the entire NHL points wise, had the longest regulation non loss streak, which is weird that that's a stat in the NHL in hockey, but had one of the biggest streaks that the league has seen in the past decade, decade and a half, and in a team that everybody is saying might be the number one Stanley Cup favorite outside of the defending Stanley Cup champions in the Tampa Bay Lightning. This is the best situation for a guy like that to come into. He's going to be energized by the move, I, I believe it. And this this could be – he's not as necessarily touted as a Raymond Bork, but this is a move that's along those lines. Guy that was beloved everywhere that he's been, been in the league for a long time. He brings 13 years of NHL experience, and he was actually on the Dallas Stars three seasons ago that knocked you out of the playoffs in the bubble. So you've seen him very recently in big moments, and he played outstanding in those games and was a big reason as to why the Stars were able to take over that series. So to round out NHL trade deadline talk and to round out the Colorado Avalanche, yeah, they had a little bit of a slip-up disappointment in losing a couple guys due to injury and that Carolina game should not have been a loss or at least there was a lot of different things that could have been called differently towards the end of that game where you you think maybe it goes the other way um but this was about as good of a trade deadline as you can get Joe Sackick has loaded the guns lock stocked and loaded pointing down a Stanley Cup championship banner that's what Joe Sackick has proven this Colorado Avalanche team is expecting and that's what this team has to now go out there use the tools use the groceries that Joe Sackick brought into the kitchen and make something out of it this fan base has been starving for this team to live up to its potential and right now all of the pieces are in place um so I'm hopeful I'm keeping my fingers crossed uh and I'm I'm fine with losing a few games here down the stretch you don't want to win the president's trophy but you want to make sure that you have all your horses healthy so get Landis Scott get Gerard back Get these new guys integrated, have them playing a ton, get get used to the other guys on the ice, and let's see what this team can actually do. If this team plays up to their full potential at a fully healthy clip, if you're able to get 75% health throughout the playoff run, this team is going to do something special. I'm calling it right now. I'm hoping that I'm not jinxing it. I'm knocking on wood. But NHL trade deadline comes and goes. Colorado Avalanche, big winners at the NHL trade deadline. I'm going to get into a little bit of a break, and uh, I'm going to come back and talk about the – NBA. I got uh, another Jokic defender that's coming up here on week five of Riding the Pine through the Far End of the Bench podcast. <laughs> All right. Now, uh, I've talked about the NHL. I didn't, I'm not going to do a mile high report um, per se. However, the Denver Nuggets and Nikola Jokic once again run the conversation, at least the start of the conversation about the NBA and professional basketball. 
Nico and I have been very outspoken for the fact that the national media pays no attention or tries to push a narrative that Nikola Jogic is not the MVP or the best player in the league. Uh, I was catching up on the local Denver sports radio show, and they had a national media member on. Mark Schlereth had the, the connection with Stephen A. Smith, uh, pretty much the, the, the guy, the NBA guy that wasn't a, a player or anything at ESPN. And he had some interesting comments to say about Nikola Jokic. So I'm gonna, I took a, a, I grabbed his comments that he made about the MVP, and uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and play his comments that he made about Nikola Jokic regarding his play so far in the Nuggets season. So this is Stephen A. Smith on um, Nikola Jokic being the MVP and best player in the NBA. Hey Jamal Murray, hey Michael Porter Jr. And somehow, some way, the same thing that Jokic was doing when they were there, he's doing. They're not there. It's not even more. I'm like, wait a minute. I, I can't, in good conscience, ignore what this guy brings to the table on a night in, night out basis. I mean, he throws up shots or all off angle, off tilt, or whatever. It just goes in the pinpoint passes, the rebounds, and the, he wears you down. His IQ is off the charts. I'm just like, this guy is a worthy, worthy MVP. And there is no doubt about it. And so for me, it's just about doing my job and being as fair as I possibly can be. And and no matter what, never failing to recognize the greatness that we're witnessing. And, you know, obviously I think Mike Malone. Needless to say, that was surprising when I heard it. When I heard it coming out of Stephen A. Smith's mouth, it was even more shocking. That's Those are very much things that Nico and I have been saying the entire time that we've had this show. Nikola Jokic, whether or not he's playing on a big market team, whether or not his team is the number one ranked, number one seeded team in the NBA, you cannot deny the fact that this season, without Jamal Murray, without Michael Porter Jr., Nikola Jokic is playing at a better pace than he did in the season in which he's the reigning MVP, and his team is still within the playoff picture now. They've had two pretty bad losses in a row. Sunday night to Boston was absolutely garbage with the quote-unquote effort that the starting five put out on the floor, and Michael Malone made the decision that not only was he going to punish those guys for not putting forth the effort, he was going to start the second unit in the second half. So Nikola Jokic and uh, Aaron Gordon, all the starters, Bones Highland, were not in at the start of the third quarter. And that was a statement from Michael Malone to all of his players, especially his starting unit, that said, hey, if you're not going to put forth effort, I don't care if you were losing by 25 like they were at one point in the game. If you're not going to put forth effort, I'm not going to put you on the floor. So it's not necessarily the worst thing in the world. Now, you don't want the Nuggets to be in the play-in situation. In a perfect world, you'd like them to maybe play themselves up into a three or a four seed. And I might as well just start talking about it now. In the NBA Western Conference, the Phoenix Suns are the number one team, and they have the most separation between them and the next person in front of them. From two to seven, there's about four games that separate those teams. Right now, Denver is in a tie, and I think they lose the tiebreaker with Minnesota, so they would be the seven seed in the play-in tournament, and Minnesota would be the six seed, the final team just into the playoff bracket. In a perfect world, you would hope that the Nuggets are able to figure themselves out. Maybe you get Jamal Murray or Michael Porter Jr., maybe both back, 
and you hope that you can end the season on a tear, maybe play yourself into that sixth to fifth seed. I don't know if you're going to be able to have enough time to get yourself all the way back up to three, but it's not outside of the realm of possibility to say if this Nuggets team gets hot, they're just as good as any of the other six teams besides the Phoenix Suns in front of them. Um, so that's my take on, on where the Nuggets stand currently and where the Western Conference pretty much stands as a whole. And I'm not necessarily sold on the Suns. It's interesting because they are the best team in the West and they have been the best team in the West all season. However, some for some reason in the playoffs, I just don't see them as a threat. I mean, yeah, they, they beat the Nuggets. They swept the Nuggets last season, but... It doesn't it doesn't seem like it carried over at all to the season. I'm not scared of them the way I would be scared of uh, Golden State after their massive run or any, any of those other great teams. This does not feel like a great team. So, yes, they might be the one seed. They could be a one seed that has trouble in the first round, and we maybe see them in a second-round exit situation. I don't know how they're going to be able to handle being the hype going into the playoffs because remember they were the number two seed in the west last year utah was the number one in the eastern conference uh miami actually just took over the number one spot in the eastern conference and now they're 47 and 24 it doesn't really mean much because right now there are only six games separating the number one and the number six seed in the eastern conference so miami is able to battle themselves back up into the one spot they're three games ahead of milwaukee the Eastern Conference, yes, those teams that you don't. The Eastern Conference has all the teams that I think you don't want to see in a seven-game series. I don't think you want to see Milwaukee in a seven-game series because Giannis can wear on you, and they have the guys to to defend you and, and lock you up, make you play a dirty style of basketball. Same thing with Miami, uh, Philadelphia. I, yeah, I'm not sold on Philadelphia. I don't know what to tell you. Um, James Harden's already starting to cause issues. That loss to the Nuggets was a real telling thing about the, the Philadelphia 76ers. They have absolutely no mental toughness, and if you get under their skin at all, um, they're they're pretty much done for. So that's kind of where where I'm standing on the Eastern Conference. It's when Nico gets back, I'll have to ask him what he what he thinks is making it. If East is more competitive because they have better teams, better competition, better parity, or is it just a lack of talent overall? It could be that all these teams are just really bad, and right now Miami's the best of the bad teams. 47-24 and 24 is not a very impressive record to be carrying on number one seed this late into the season. Like That's a, a fourth to sixth seed record in a normal year. But for whatever reason, the Eastern Conference has been a, a gauntlet, or at least they've treated each other as a gauntlet this season. Um, yeah, that's about as much insight as I can give you on NBA basketball. Uh, and yeah, I'm going to transition over to March Madness, discuss the, the big upsets happening in the first two rounds, and then maybe look ahead to my predictions into the Sweet 16. That's coming up here to finish up Ride in the Pine Week 5 via the Far End of the Bench podcast. Well, how about that right in? guess that's why they call it Sin City. I think that's what we should start saying about March Madness. We should come up with a parody line for that. Maybe that'll be our first T-shirt. How about that right in? Guess that's why they call it March Madness. (laughs) It was wild. I'm not going to lie. And yes, I was just now watching the second period of the Minnesota Wild versus the Golden Knights, and that's why Wild was stuck in my head. Uh, March Madness is what we're talking about. Round of 64, round of 32 took place over the past weekend. And uh, nobody has a perfect bracket left. I think after the first 
three quarters of the games were played, 17 out of like 13 million that had been submitted were still even close to perfect. Um, so we'll talk about the major upsets that happened in the round of 64 to start off with. And we got to start with the very first one. It was There was like three upsets of the day that happened all in the same day. So we'll start with the first one. Richmond defeats number five seed Iowa 67-63. Uh, Nico was pissed. Nico was texting me during this game. Uh, he had Iowa into his Sweet 16, so that was a tough way for him to start off. And Richmond, kudos to them, didn't end up paying out, panning out for them. You, you got smacked against Providence in the following round. But, hey, you got the win over a team in Iowa that a lot of people were saying was picking up momentum during the Big Ten Championship tournament. And Nico even said it. like That's kind of their M.O. They catch fire in the conference tournament or towards the end and win the conference championship. And then all of a sudden they turn around and lay a goose egg in the NCAA tournament. That was your first 12-5 upset of the NCAA March Madness tournament. Number 11, Notre Dame takes down number 6, Alabama. That was my dad's national champion. Uh, 78-64 was a score in that game. Alabama is still confirmed a football school. Number 11, Michigan defeats number 6, Colorado State. That one was mainly in there. That was just difficult to have to deal with. Unfortunate that the, the Rammies weren't able to put up much more of a fight. Roddy White, though. Not Roddy White. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name. Nico tweeted about it. Um, I'm going to have to figure that out now. It's going to bug me. David Roddy is the name that I was looking for. David Roddy... A uh, big-time player for the Rams, pretty much the guy that led them to the NCAA tournament this season. Uh, Nico seems to think that uh, it's not just Nico. There's talks surrounding him that he might be the next Jimmy Graham or Antonio Gates. Or maybe, I mean, you could even throw Julius Peppers in there. Peppers played football in college as well. But a guy that can make the transition from basketball star to possibly tight end. And CSU already has uh, Trey McBride coming out into this year's draft as a tight end. And now, um, I'm going to have to pull up his name again. David Roddy. David Roddy is a name that people should pay attention to. If your team is, maybe if you got a, a fun coaching staff that's willing to take a chance, that's why Nico thinks that it might end up being the Broncos because Nathaniel Hackett's always looking for a way to get a leg up on everybody else. David Roddy could be the guy that you bring in to maybe add a little bit of depth to your tight end position. He's not going to be able to bring much blocking-wise. I'll say he plays basketball in a very aggressive manner. So it's not to say that you can't teach him how to block, but he's not going to come in knowing that right away. He's going to come in knowing how to find open space, and he's very athletic. And when you add those few things in together, think of Tony Gonzalez. Tony Gonzalez was a basketball player first, became a Hall of Fame tight end. Antonio Gates, same thing. Jimmy Graham, same thing. Could David Roddy be the next one? Who knows? That's unfortunate. Uh, Michigan ended up, ends up has ended up going on quite a bit of a run after that. So no shame that the Rams lost. Michigan is into the Sweet 16. It's just weird because that was like may, the main talk about CSU going into the tournament. And I texted Nico and I asked him point blank, "What is like the ceiling for this CSU Rams team?" And he said. They'll be able to win the first game, maybe, but after that, it's going to be an absolute shit show. And Michigan ended up beating them, and now Michigan turned around and knocked out 
uh, another big time and then knocked out number three Tennessee out of the SEC to set up a date with Villanova in the Sweet 16. So, yeah, this sucked for CSU. And then the last one, biggest one of the weekend, number 15, St. Peter's out of New Garden City, New Jersey, the Peacocks. I'm a peacock. You got to let me fly on this one. They flew over the Kentucky Wildcats, 85-79. Coach Cal's Wildcats no longer in the tournament. St. Peter's actually pulled off another upset in round two, so they're into the Sweet 16. Also, we're going to be making – I'll go through my predictions of the Sweet 16 after we talk about the the round of 32 upsets. But to finish off that first round, St. Peter's taking out a blue blood program in Kentucky, and Coach Cal now – you know, that's that's a big thing to have happen. Kentucky is a, a basketball school. The way Alabama is a football school, Kentucky is a basketball school. You'd think a coach of the caliber of John Calipari, a guy who's brought a ton of success into your program, maybe not as recent as you might have liked, but a guy who's been there and established the blue blood culture that you do have, he's now going to be looked at as a guy who's going into the hot seat because Kentucky is so gung-ho about tournament success. And this is a a bad example. It could happen to anybody. It it happens very – it's not as rare as it used to be. The high seeds can come in, especially in basketball, where if a couple guys get hot from three – it could be a long night. If you got if your shooters go cold and the other team gets hot for three, even just on a five-minute run, it could be about an 18-point swing. And in a game like basketball, in a tournament like March Madness, where you have a very small margin of error in that system, in that if you lose, you're going home, it could happen to anybody. So there's no necessarily shame in what happened to the Kentucky Wildcats. And the March Madness... It's great, but I think they can handle the media a little bit differently. These are, we talk about college football players maybe being a little bit too harsh in media sessions. The reporters being a little bit too harsh with college football players. Those are at least guys that could that are at minimum twenty to twenty three. These are true eighteen year old, nineteen year old kids after March Madness, and I saw some of the questions that they were asking the Kentucky players, like, "What do you think?" cause this and in the moment like it's it's tough to talk about you don't want to have to you can't throw anybody under the bus but you also is a team sport so you can't take all of the responsibility it was a tough situation for those kids to be put in and now coach Cal I think is going to be looked at as a coach who's on the hot seat Kentucky is either going to have to make some noise next year in the tournament or we might be seeing the end of an era in wildcat basketball that was all the major upsets in the round of 64. In the round of 32, uh, North Carolina defeated Baylor, the reigning national champs, 93-84 in overtime. So the Tar Heels did end up making a lot more noise than I anticipated. I had them losing in the first round to Marquette. Obviously wrong about that, but nobody expected them to come out and beat Baylor, especially a team as athletic as Baylor is, and handle them as well as they did in overtime. Iowa State defeats number 3 Wisconsin, uh, 54-49. Wisconsin had that great regular season. We all could have seen this coming. The faltering down the stretch of the regular season, having to share the Big Ten regular season championship, not making any kind of noise in the Big Ten championship tournament, and then you come in and you're playing a team in Iowa State where you got the 11-6 upset that you wanted. This is the easiest matchup that you could have had 
in your bracket and you let an Iowa State school come out and absolutely punk you. If you get beat by Iowa State in anything other than wrestling, you have no business doing anything that year. Uh, I'm sorry if you're a Cyclone fan, but other than wrestling, there is absolutely no success surrounding the sports of the Iowa State University program. And right now we're seeing the Cyclones in uh, the Sweet 16 defeating a number three seed and a number six seed on their way doing it. Number 15, St. Peter's knocked off number seven, Murray State, 70 to 60. And then the final upset, one that I'm not too happy about because I had Auburn losing in my national championship, Miami, number 10 seed, defeats the Tigers out of the SEC, 79-61. And the Hurricanes get into the Sweet 16 for this year as well. I'm still in the running. I'm going to go ahead, before I talk about the Sweet 16, I guess I'll run down the uh, standings after the first weekend of the tournament. We had a very high amount of ties going into the round of 32. The round of 32 cleared things out quite a bit. Uh, I personally am sitting at 15. I still have my national champion and three out of my four final four, actually two out of my four final four are left. I have Texas Tech and Villanova as my two teams that I predicted into the final four left. And then obviously I had Texas Tech beating Auburn in my national championship. I talked about that last week. Uh, the other people, I guess the person leading the standings now is uh, Salvaje5470. That is my youngest brother, Ed. I know that's uh, I don't, that's just his username and everything that he does. He's basically fluent in Spanish. Don't ask why. He is leading the pack. He has Duke as his national champion. Uh, Rakaja2 is the username of the next person in, in second place. And then we have a three-way tie in third between Jimmy Hoffa, R5151, and King Ra, 231. Uh, those are the top three so far. And then people kind of randomly scattered throughout the rest of them. Nico is at 11th currently. And let's see if we'll have any other former guests that I recognize their username here. I don't believe so. Uh, oh, Bree is sitting in a tie right now for 42nd. So her national champion was UConn, if you guys can remember. So we're having a lot of fun in the FET OTB Bracket Challenge, competing for that $150 gift card. Oh, here's my dad sitting at 69th uh, after his national championship lost in the first round. We're all having a lot of fun competing uh, against each other for that $150 Visa gift card in that FEOT bracket cha- FEOTB bracket challenge. We'll be continuing on doing that, and uh, we'll do more of these fantasy sports type setups. But now... Let's get into some predictions for the Sweet 16 before I send you guys off on the final episode of the Ride in the Pine series. Um, Right now, we have Gonzaga, Arkansas, and Duke versus Texas Tech in the West Bracket. That Duke-Texas Tech game is important to me because it's going to basically be my deciding factor, obviously, like... This, this is the one round of the tournament where I wasn't sure Texas Tech was going to be able to make it through. This is where I started to have some doubts about the Red Raiders. I thought they would be playing Michigan State in this situation. I thought Michigan State would take care of Duke. I wanted to see Coach K get beat by Tom Izzo in his final tournament. Didn't end up happening. I would like this to work out in my favor because I would like to take over a higher spot in the rankings. And I know if, right now the leading bracket in the group has Duke as their national champion. So if my team is able to eliminate Duke, I would feel a lot better about that. Uh, Gonzaga, Arkansas. I'm not going to say, obviously Gonzaga is the favorite. I'm not going to say that Arkansas is outmatched. I think that Arkansas can, 
this is going to be probably a situation. I've, I've sensed a situation coming on like that national championship game last year where Arkansas is athletic enough that they can take down these big men who skilled big men for Gonzaga. That's what Gonzaga is built off of. They're not built off of athleticism. They're built off of skill. They're built off of basketball IQ. Arkansas is one of those teams at SEC under Coach Muss where they understand situations as well. Analytically, they know what makes the most sense, and they're going to put themselves in the best situation to win. Arkansas could very easily upset Gonzaga, but my prediction would be a Gonzaga-Texas Tech matchup in the Elite Eight. In the East bracket, we have Baylor, actually North Carolina, taking on UCLA, battle the two blue blood programs. And then on the other side of that East bracket, Purdue versus St. Peter's. If you're Purdue, be wary of these St. Peter's Peacocks, but man, did you luck out. Like Think of the teams that you could have had to play in this situation. Let's go back through St. Peter's run. Now they upset number two, Kentucky. This could be a 2-3 matchup at the Sweet 16 level between Kentucky and Purdue. You could have had to face Murray State or the team that Murray State upset or didn't upset beat in the first round, San Francisco. Those are two quality programs that could be dangerous. Now you find yourself in the situation of a team, a 15 seed that is hot. And when 15 seeds get hot, we've seen it in the VCUs, the UMCBs, uh, Florida Gulf Coasts. This is not a situation where if you're the higher seed in the Sweet 16 round, you're confident because your team technically should be talented enough to overcome this challenge. But there's always that thing in the back of your mind, college basketball gets funny that way. Like I said, if if a guy gets hot from three and your team goes cold offensively, you're out of luck. And there's not much you could do about that. So as a Boilermaker fan, I'd be confident. I have Purdue winning this round. I thought I had them beating Kentucky and meeting Baylor in the Elite Eight of this of this portion of the bracket. So I, I have faith in Purdue that they'll win, but this upset alert thing, ah, that seat is a little bit warm for me, warm for my liking. I wouldn't be betting on Purdue if, if, that's, if that was a game I was looking at. In the South region, Arizona, number one seed, taking on Houston, number five seed, who upset Illinois in the round of 32. Uh, and then the other side of this matchup, Michigan, who upset Tennessee, like I mentioned, taking on Villanova. I have Villanova moving on into my final four. Um, so I am actually hoping that Villanova takes care of Michigan. I actually feel a lot better that, about Villanova beating Michigan than I did about Villanova beating Tennessee. Arizona-Houston, you'd like to think that Arizona, being a team that was number one ranked over a majority of the season— and has already had their come-to-Jesus loss when they got beat by CU Boulder on the road, they should be able to handle the pressure of this situation. But Arizona is also a team that has struggled as the high seed against these lower teams that they think they should walk right through. So do I trust Arizona mentally? No. But then again, basketball is a game where a freak athlete can take over and start dominating. So do I have faith that Arizona will win, no, but I'm going to bet on Arizona to win. That's my prediction to get into the next round, and I have Villanova winning the other matchup in the south bracket. And then the Midwest to finish out the final prediction for my Sweet 16, Kansas versus Providence. I had Providence beating Kansas initially, so that matchup, I could still pick that matchup right. And then the other game, I had neither of these teams in this situation. I had Wisconsin versus Auburn. In the other Midwest Sweet 16 matchup, it ended up being Iowa State and Miami, a 10 and 11. Um, so the Cyclones and the Hurricanes. Battle of the weather, 
game, Cyclones versus Hurricanes. I like Miami in that matchup. I watch Miami a little bit more than I watched Iowa State in the regular season. They have way better athleticism. I think they're more talented, and I think they're an overall better team. Iowa State's been a good run so far, but if I were going to pick a team that had a double-digit seed going into the tournament that can make a run like this, it would be Miami. So I'm going with the U in that last Elite Eight, or excuse me, Sweet 16 matchup to make it into the Elite Eight. All right, thank you guys for checking out the finale of the Ride in the Pine series. Um, hope you guys enjoyed listening. If you haven't already, be sure to follow us on our social media pages at FEOTB Pod. If you're in our bracket challenge and competing for that $150 Visa gift card, you have to follow all of our social medias plus subscribe to our YouTube channel to qualify for that prize if you are able to walk away with the number one bracket out of the group. 73 people in total put in a bracket. So if you're the number one out of 73, you have to be following and subscribe to our YouTube channel in order to win your $150 prize. Um, so be sure to do that. Check out our videos on our YouTube channel I put in here. Uh, let me know what you think about the Deshaun Watson trade as well as uh, other NFL free agency moves in the comments below. Comment whatever you want on our YouTube channel. We'll be sure to get back to your comments, reach out to you. We'll debate you at FEOTB Pod as well. Um, and be sure wherever you're listening to this podcast right now, subscribe, rate it five stars, listen every single Wednesday to our new episodes. Nico will be making his return next week. We'll have episode 78 of the Far End of the Bench podcast coming back after this finale of the Ride in the Pine series. I've had a blast in rocking with you guys for the last five weeks by myself. Uh, like I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, big shout out to all the listeners, big shout out to Bree and uh, everybody who's listened to the Ride in the Pine series. Had a lot of fun doing these. And uh, like I mentioned also earlier, Christian Saez will be coming back on Friday for a bonus episode that will break down everything coming up for the 2022-2023 MLB season. Oh, boy. I'm running out of words. Um, I think that's all that I have for you guys. Thank you again for listening. Riding the Pine finale. My name is Jimmy Pilato. I will see you guys next week for Far End of the Bench, episode 78, with my co-host, Nico Bryant. But for now, stay safe. Enjoy your week. This is the blues I'm playing Yes, it's a final thing When the night is cold and lonely This is a dollar bell piece. Was it the money that made me a savage? Popping them prices and I made it a habit Towing them pistols and serving them addicts That was exciting to me